you want to open your Bibles to uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 5, 1 Corinthians chapter 5. And as you turn there, I do want to let you know that uh, Miss Lois Atkins, um, she's not with us today, but her, her sister passed away um, this weekend. So we want to make sure that you keep her in, her, in, her prayer, in your prayers, uh, that God would be with her during this, uh, this time. Well, we're uh, two uh, sermons away today's and next week, and we'll finish our series on the church. Uh, we pick up last week uh, talking about uh, church discipline. Uh, so we're going to be in 1 Corinthians 5. We're going to camp here today. I'll read the passage, and then I'll pray, and then we'll dig in uh, to the Word. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 1. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. For a man has his father's wife, and you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though absent in body, I am present in spirit, and as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present, with the power of the Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexual immoral of this world or the greedy or the swindlers or the idolaters. Since then, you would have to go out of the world. But now I am writing you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual morality or greed, or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? It is not those inside the church whom you are to judge. Is is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. Let's pray. Father, you are holy. You are righteous and good. God, you are full of love, slow to anger, merciful and gracious. God, we thank you for the high demands that you place on your people. And God, when we enter your presence, we are aware how we fall short, how we are not holy as you are holy, how we are not righteous, how we are not, don't have pure hearts, but our hearts are often unclean. God, we come, all of us, with sin of this past week. Sin maybe even this morning, God. God, we come to you for forgiveness through the name, um, the life, death, and resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. God, we thank you that you tell us to confess our sins to you and that we will find mercy. So God, I pray for repentance this morning. God, I pray that we would be a people who love to repent, that we would find your amazing grace, that we would know that our chains have been, we've been set free from the chains of bondage, of slavery to sin. Forgive us, we pray in Christ's name. And God, as we think about those who are hurting, we pray for our dear sister Lois, who lost her sister this week. God, we pray that you minister to her by the power of your Holy Spirit. As she mourns, God, we pray you comfort her by your grace. God, we pray that you comfort 
this city uh, by your grace through the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. God, we pray for the proclamation of your gospel this day across um, this city and across our land. God, we pray specifically for Nate Stanton this morning at West End Baptist Church. God, we pray as he steps to the pulpit to preach, God, that people would be formed and shaped into the likeness of Christ. God, that you would uh, use him uh, to declare your word, to bring people to a saving knowledge of you. And God, I pray uh, for the people who I love as we turn now to hear your word. Uh, God, I I pray that you would be gracious to us this morning. Father, we um, sometimes are afraid to hear hard things or to say hard things, but God, we know all Scripture is breathed out by you and is useful. It is profitable for teaching, for correction, for rebuke, for training in righteousness. So God, I pray this morning that you would train your people in righteousness. God, I pray that I may decrease, that you may increase, that the name of the Lord Jesus Christ would be exalted, God, this morning, that you would be praised, that you would get all the glory this morning. God, we pray now that you would soften our hearts. God, fill us with your grace and with your love. We ask you to bless your people. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, Dr. John Smith uh, served as a family doctor for over 40 years uh, in his hometown. His town was small. He was one of only two doctors. Uh, He came to love his patients. He was raised with many of them and had the privilege to serve multiple generations through his family practice. His motivation to serve well was always his love for his patients. There were many days he left the office exhausted, but full of joy as he saw the impact made in the lives of those he loved. And there were other days that caused his heart to sink and be full of grief as he had to give his patients bad news. It was the worst part of his job. He hated to have to tell his patients, his friends, that they had serious medical problems, that if not corrected, would lead to death. He cried with many of his patients over his 40-year career, but never enjoyed speaking hard words to the people he loved. Although he never enjoyed it, He still did it because of his love for his patients. He did not want them to die, so he was willing to speak hard words and do hard things so that he could help destroy that which was trying to destroy the people he loved. Dr. Smith, Dr. John Smith, is not a real person, but there are many doctors like him who, in love, have to be willing to give bad news to their patients whom they love. Uh, No one seems to ever question a doctor's motivation in sharing the hard news of a disease or a cancer with their patients because they know it is extremely unloving and illegal to intentionally give a false diagnosis. Have you ever heard of a doctor that refused to tell his patients they were sick? I mean, it's almost uniformly accepted that a doctor must tell the patient the truth about their illness. But that was not always the case. Peter Dixon, a former oncologist and current primary care doctor, says this, I quote, I remember being in medical school years ago and being distinctly told that when a person has lung cancer, never tell them they have lung cancer. We were told to give them a dose of morphine and wash our hands of it. Things 
have certainly changed, unquote. Would you go to a doctor that you knew would intentionally lie to you? What about one who would intentionally mislead you about the severity of your diagnosis to protect your feelings? How could you go to a doctor that was not willing to be straight with you about something that could lead to your death? And would it not be extremely unloving for a doctor to say you are in perfect health, while in reality you had a terminal cancer that gave you three months to live? How much more unloving would it be for a pastor to say that you are in perfect spiritual health, while in reality you are living far from God, under His judgment, and in danger of the fires of hell? One lies to you about a temporary earthly death, while the other lies to you about eternal death in a literal place called hell, where there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth under unquenchable fire. Sadly, many churches are lying to their people and giving them confidence of eternal bliss, while their lives demonstrate no faith in Jesus Christ. They are denying Him with their words or with their actions. As I mentioned last week, the Protestant reformers said of the church this, where the word of God is truly preached and taught, where the sacraments rightly administered and church discipline faithfully exercised, there the one true holy and apostolic church is present. Now, most Baptists have no problem with the, 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 the word of God being truly taught um, and preached. Or we don't have any problem with the sacraments being rightly administered. But church discipline, on the other hand, should be avoided at all cost. Historically, there are only two forms of church discipline, formative and corrective. Last week I mentioned regular formative church discipline and regular corrective church discipline. If you missed last week's sermon, this is a two-part series, I'd recommend Uh, you going online or getting a CD and listening to last week's message. Uh, The formative church discipline, it says how the church stays in shape, how we are formed into the likeness of Christ. So the regular preaching of God's Word on Sunday morning, uh, Sunday school, our our prayer time, our Sunday evening gatherings, our one-on-one discipleship relationships, those are designed to mold and shape Christians to become mature like Christ, to be formed into the image of Jesus Christ. Our goal as a church is Paul's goal that he mentions in Colossians 1, 28 and 29. Paul says this, Jesus we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that powerfully works within me. All that we do as a church should be to exalt the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? Because we want to become like Jesus. This happens through the regular preaching and teaching of the Word of God. In various settings, both corporately here and privately in one-on-one relationships. The second thing I mentioned is the regular corrective church discipline. This is when we lovingly warn, here key word, lovingly warn and correct our brothers and sisters when they're walking in darkness instead of the light. We should regularly 
invite others to give us words of corrections, to, to change us that we may be more like Christ. I made the case last week that we have to believe that discipline, corrective discipline, is a good thing. And sometimes that's hard to believe. But Revelation 3.19 says, Jesus says, Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. And the author of Hebrews writes, Have you forgotten the exhortations that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for disciplines that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? See, being disciplined by the Lord proves that we are his children whom he loves. The Lord regularly and correctively disciplines his children. We should not disregard it, but we should embrace it. So today we're going to look at irregular corrective church discipline, or last week the idea of protective church discipline. So I pray this morning that you will see the importance of the practice of church discipline, but also that not practicing it is one of the most unloving things that a church can do. So we're going to look at a specific corrective church discipline situation this morning in 1 Corinthians 5. If you want to follow along in the outline provided for you, just flip on the back of the bulletin. And beloved, I'll let you know that even talking to other pastors this week about preaching this message, a lot of them looked at me and said, have fun with that. Meaning you're crazy. Do you want to lose your job? (laughs) Beloved, and I would just say this to you, I'm willing to lose my job over something like this because I don't want you to perish. Well, let's read this text this morning and see what God says about church discipline. The problem, number one, the problem. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 5.1, he says this, it is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not even tolerated among pagans, for a man has his father's wife. Uh, People from the church in Corinth reported to Paul of a situation involving sexual immorality. A man had entered into an adulterous relationship with his stepmother. It was a grievous sin. But notice, it was one that was tolerated by the church. One problem is the sexual immorality of this man, but a whole another problem is the acceptance of that sin by the church community. Paul goes on in verse 2, And you are arrogant, Ought you, rather, ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though I am absent in the body, I am present in spirit. And as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. The church at Corinth did not understand the holiness of the church. We are called as Christians to be holy as God who called us is holy. Peter even calls the church in, in, in 1 Peter 2 a holy priesthood, a holy nation. Titus 2.14 says, Jesus gave himself to us to redeem us from all sin and to purify us as a people for himself who are zealous for good works. Jesus died to bring us to God. But he also 
died that we may live a new life. We may be dead to sin and live for righteousness. And because the church here in Corinth forgot about God's holiness and likewise their holiness, Paul calls the church to act. He says this man should be removed from the church community. He calls them to take them off your church role. And I think Paul uses slightly harsher language than we may be accustomed to. Listen to what he says in verse 4 and 5. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan. Deliver this man to Satan. Now those seem like very hard and unloving words. But as we'll see in a moment, they really are full of grace. And they are full of love. But first, let's just take a moment and pause and see how serious God takes sin. God hates sin with a holy love. Even the passage that Robert read this morning about um, Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, Leviticus 10.1 says this, says the sons of Aaron each took his censer and put fire on it and laid incense on it and offered unauthorized fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded. Two of God's people were doing something in worship that God forbid, offering unauthorized fire, something he did not command. And what did the Lord do? Did he ignore it? Did he tolerate it? Look what it says in verse 2. On the contrary, it says this, And fire came out from before the Lord and consumed them. And they died before the Lord. Then Moses said to Aaron, This is what the Lord has said among those who are near me, who are my people, I will be sanctified. And before all people, I will be glorified. And Aaron held his peace. God takes sin seriously. The reason we see this is in Leviticus chapter 10 and 11. He establishes the Levitical priesthood to do what? To distinguish between the holy and the common, between the unclean and the clean. You are to teach the people of Israel all the statutes that the Lord had spoken to them by Moses. See, God's newly formed people had to know what it meant to be holy, to be set apart, to be God's people, and those who were not. They were entering into foreign nations, and they had to say, we are going to live for the Lord. You all know that great verse by Joshua that says, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Well, they needed to know what it meant to serve the Lord. That's why God established the priest. Now, some of you may be singing, well, pastor, that's the Old Testament. That's how God dealt with people in the Old Testament. Aren't we in the New Testament era, an area of grace and love? Well, listen to Jack, Acts chapter 5. When God purifies his people, newly formed people of God, and how he judged Ananias and Sapphira. Ananias and Sapphira had sold a field and kept a portion of the proceeds for themselves. Ananias lied to Peter. He lied to a man about the land. And this is what Peter said to him. Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. And after hearing these words, Ananias dropped dead. Three hours later, the same exact thing happened to his wife. 
See, God takes sin very seriously. And beloved, so should we. So the second thing we want to see here to understand how corrective church discipline is loving is to know its purpose. To know its purpose. Second, the purpose. There are three things you see in this passage that show us how an act of excommunication or removal from the body of Christ is an act of love. Look back with me in verse 5. Paul tells the church, you are to deliver this man to Satan. And this phrase is most likely just referring to the removal of the, of, of the visible kingdom of God, which is the church, to the visible kingdom of Satan, which is the world. In God's economy, there are only two kingdoms. There's God's kingdom and there's Satan's kingdom. The kingdom of light and the kingdom of darkness. Jesus makes this point in, in John 8. Listen to what our Lord said. John 8, 42 through 44. If God were your father, you would love me. For I came from God and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character for he is a liar and the father of lies. See, Paul, like Jesus, is establishing there's only two kingdoms. So to remove a man, deliver him to Satan, is to deliver him outside of the church community. One of the reasons why I'm even doing this series on the church is I want to make it mean something to be part of the church. It has to mean more to be part of God's people than to be part of a social club. That is not what our world is like. I was talking to a pastor this week, an older man, uh, and he said, the greatest membership I have, the greatest membership I have is being part of my church, my church membership. I care about this church. I care about it so much, I want it to make it mean something so that when, when we're not here, we feel something visibly different. That's what Paul's getting at here. Let them not be part of the community. But why? The question is, why does Paul deliver this man to Satan? Uh, We see two purpose clauses here in verse 5. It says, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Paul wants this man's flesh destroyed. That doesn't mean he wants his physical body to to be destroyed. He means the flesh, the things that are opposed to God. It says in Romans 8, 8, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. What Paul was saying is that we want this man's flesh destroyed so that he can please God and be accepted into the heavenly kingdom. The second purpose clause there, and ultimately the final reason why we must exercise church discipline is so that his spirit, so that purpose clause, his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Sin is serious. So serious that it has to be punished. But Paul does not want to make this man punish eternally. Paul wants to save this man. He wants him to, to come to the Lord Jesus Christ. He says, if we give him discipline now, he may, he may turn and trust in Jesus Christ as his Savior and live as Jesus is his Lord. Is that not love? It's one of the most difficult kinds of love. It is a love that may cause you to be spurned and rejected. 
It is never good for a child not to hear the word no. Whether uh, it is for candy, staying up too late, to strangers, uh, to expensive toys, children must learn to accept the word no. And if a child never hears the word no, what happens? They become the center of the universe. They become spoiled. When I met with the, the Sixties Club a little, little while back, I just asked them, what do you guys think that I should tell the younger generation? So I'll tell the younger generation, since you guys are all sitting right here. Um, tell them to discipline their children. They see in this world that children always, aren't always disciplined. They become the center of the universe. But when a child is told no, what is often a typical response? You don't love me. If you don't give me what I want, then you do not love me, but rather you hate me. Uh, children, those who are here, can I just tell you this? Your children or your, your parents discipline you because they love you. That is why. They want to spare you pain. They want to spare you hurt. So by they lovingly correct you now so that you can have a long, fruitful life in the future. Now, we all know that. It's easy to apply that to parenting, isn't it? You know, we, we, we discipline our children because we don't want them to turn out spoiled, rotten as they're adults. We all say amen to that. See, but what our world has done, our world has taken the idea of love and redefined it to be like an ornery child never told, told the word no. Real love is willingly and graciously say hard things that may cause someone to reject you because you love them and you don't want them to be hurt. See, but our culture says if you don't like my ideas, if you don't like my lifestyle, if you say no, if you say you disagree with me, then you don't accept me. You don't value me. You don't love me. That's not love. Real love is, is, is helping people live for eternity. Real love is telling things that may cause you to be rejected now, but in the end, save someone's soul from death. And the reason why we don't practice church discipline is because I, as a pastor, the fear is, is if, I, if you exercise this, people will look at you as unloving. That's, that's, that's a risk. But is, 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 is it worth the risk? Absolutely. Church discipline is one of the greatest acts of love because it helps someone see how God treats sinners in judgment and implores them to turn from sin and turn to God. As a doctor looks in the eyes of his patients and tells them the harsh reality so that he can provide treatment that will save their life. Likewise, the church must tell our wayward members the harsh reality of those who deny Jesus Christ in this life, either by their words or by their life. A friend, if you are here today and you are not um, a follower of Jesus Christ, can I just encourage you to consider this afternoon what the, what the Bible says about sin. Think about how serious the Bible takes sin. Sin separates people from God and causes them to be punished eternally. God is holy. And being holy, he must hate sin. So if you're here and you're not a follower of Jesus Christ, how do you handle your sin? Well, the Bible says there's two ways that people handle their sin. Uh, first, uh, the first way you handle your sins is you pay for them. Yourself, forever, in a literal hell, rightly 
and justly condemned for your sin against a holy and righteous God. But secondly, the second way you handle your sin is you turn to Christ, who said that if you come to me, I will make you righteous. Because he took all our sin on the cross. Listen to God's word, 1 Corinthians 5, 21. For our sake he made him, Jesus, to be sin, who knew no sin that in him we might become the righteousness of God. All who turn to Christ, hear me, all who turn to Christ have their sins credited to Jesus. And they have the righteousness of Jesus Christ credited to you. All who turn to Christ. Friend, if you are here and you are not a follower of Jesus Christ, if you are not walking in his light, turn to him today. Let him take your sin. Receive his righteousness. He's giving it to you. Believer, if you came this morning struggling with sin, sin that you are ashamed of, can I just tell you, turn to Christ. Repent of your sin. Destroy your flesh, the things that opposes God. Embrace His grace, His love. It was His love that spilled out His blood on Calvary. The reason why we have victory in Jesus is because He died and rose again. Listen to that verse again, 2 Corinthians 5.21. For our sake, Jesus was punished. Is there any more loving act in the universe where the sinless Son of God was made to be sin for you and me? Turn from your sin. Trust in Christ. The third act of love in church discipline is that it protects the body from more sin and protects the sinner for greater judgment in causing God's children to sin. Matthew 18.5. Listen to what Paul says in verse 6. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and envy, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. See, sin spreads. A little sin, when it's allowed to take root, it is easier for that sin to grow stronger and stronger as our conscience becomes dulled or seared to the smaller sins. Now the church here was boasting They were boasting in many ways. They were boasting in their spiritual gifts. They were boasting in their ability to tolerate sin and to accept a sinner without repentance. Paul lets them know that they are endangering the whole church as well as the sinner himself. To not confront the sin exposes the entire body to potential destruction. The third thing we see here is the process, the process. Last two points will be brief, I promise. Uh, Paul mentions his letter in verse 9. Uh, 1 Corinthians is actually the second letter to the church in Corinth. Uh, we have First and Second Corinthians in the Bible, but ver- the first letter and the third letter we don't, didn't make it. They were not kept in the canon. So Paul is addressing a similar topic of his last letter, but he offers clarification. Read, read with me verses 9 through 12. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters, since then you would have to go out of the world. 
But now I am writing you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a person. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those, who, those inside the church whom you are to judge? See, Paul makes a distinction here between the believer and the non-believer. The, the, the non-believer who practices his sexual morality, Paul doesn't attack here, which typically what the church does, mind you. What Paul says here is it's, it's anyone who bears the name brother. If you call yourself a Christian and you regularly, unrepentantly practice sexual sin or greediness or drunkenness, Paul says don't even eat with such a person. Because you are giving people a false representation of who the church is and who God is. People out there believe if you call yourself a Christian, you live contrary to sound teaching. They believe that they can have Jesus and they can have their sin too. And where does that lead them? It leads them in the danger of the fires of hell. This is what Paul is saying here. So how does the church discipline start? It usually starts with a conversation. First conversation should happen privately when one is offended. If repentance does not occur, one of the pastors should relatively get involved quickly. And beloved, no one likes these conversations. I've had them myself. It is awkward. It is uncomfortable. You run the risk of damaging relationships. You run the risk of people spreading lies about you when you confront them in love. They never get easy, but they must be had. We have to be reminded that when we confront a brother, we help save their soul. James 5, 19 and 20. My brother, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that for whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sin. We know this is important, but how do you do this? You know, Practically, how do you implement church discipline? Because if, you don't, if you're not careful, what ends up happening is we become a legalistic, sin-police church where you're just looking for people to call them out, gotcha. That's not what Paul's talking about here. The whole attitude is love, that the person will be conformed to the likeness of Christ. You know, we are working through the process. Bill and I are meeting, we're praying and talking about how do we implement this, the deacon body as well. You know, how do we develop a process of church discipline? Now, we were working on the process. We don't have it ironed out yet. But we cannot lie to people who are on our church rolls who believe themselves to be Christians when it is clearly they are not. We cannot tell them they are safe and secure in Christ if they are never here with us, if we don't know them. You know, church discipline is not the final authority. Who is the final authority? Jesus Christ. He is the judge of the living and the dead. And he says he has given church discipline to the church. He's given his earthly authority to the congregation. That's why here Paul doesn't call out the pastor. He calls out the people. The people in the church who are tolerating sin. The whole reason why we have formative discipline, the whole reason why we have Sunday school and all this stuff to get us in the Word of God is so that we can never have to deal with church discipline in this way because our sins are being confronted regularly by the preaching of the Word 
where we're changing to be more like Christ. Now, Paul gives a list here. I don't think this list is exhaustive for the church. He gives lots of lists in, in the Scriptures. Um, but what you see here is that the list typifies a person living according to the flesh rather than living according to the Spirit. We cannot tolerate sin because it deceives those who are living in the flesh. So lastly, what Paul says, we must purge. The purge. Verse 13, God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. Uh, This chapter ends with Paul quoting Deuteronomy. Nine times in Deuteronomy, that, that phrase, purge the evil person. Purge the evil person from your midst. Purge the evil person from your community. Paul's reminding his readers that God has not changed. He is a holy God and expects His people to be holy. Christ died. He died for us to purify us so that we could become righteous in His sight. Not just declared righteous, but actually live righteous and godly lives so others would give Him praise and glory. So let me close. Would you trust a church that would not listen to God's word about sin? Would you trust a church that would not be honest with people who are in eternal danger? Would you call a church unloving because they didn't want people to go to hell? Would you call God unloving because He doesn't want His people to go to hell? God called sin, sin. And for our sake, made Jesus to be sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. So, beloved, what I'm asking you to do today is to agree with God. Agree with what God says about sin. Let's call sin, sin, and understand that when we make Jesus Christ our Lord, we die to sin, and we now live for righteousness. Let us walk in a manner worthy of that calling. Let us be honest with those who don't, for their sake and for ours. Let's pray. Father, we we thank you uh, for the gift of your word. God, sometimes there are messages that are hard to share uh, because of um, the reality of those who are opposed to you. God, I pray for these people whom I love. God, we pray that we would be a holy church. Uh, God, that we would be a people set apart from you. God, that we would be bold enough to confront our brothers and sisters when they sin, when they are wayward, so that we may save their soul from death. God, I pray against any misunderstandings from this message. God, uh, this is not something that is enjoyable for a church, but God, it is necessary because it is in your word and we have to protect the purity of your body for your glory. So God, we pray that you would give us wisdom and grace and mercy in how we think about uh, how to uh, do church discipline as the people of Park Baptist. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen.